passage, the next passage in our study is Titus chapter 3, verse 8. One verse, one verse, which will take us every bit of our time together to get through. And you are excited, I know you are, that I have brought many words to use to explain that one verse. Titus chapter 3. Before we jump into the text um, of study, I want to just recap the goals that we have for this REACH emphasis. Um, and, and it will be a perfect introduction for this particular text. We've got this uh, beautiful installation that a couple of our guys spent um, dozens of hours on, probably at least 10 hours per letter to assemble um, the letter, to shape the letter, to drill and to wire over 500 light bulbs. Um, this is our initiative. We're going to spend from now through Easter trying to reach people with the gospel. We want to celebrate sharing. That's key, okay? We want to celebrate sharing because our call is not to save people. Our calling is to be a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to let God do the saving, because ultimately he's the only one that is capable of saving someone, and he's the only one of keeping someone saved once they are saved. And so our responsibility is to share. Pastorally, what we want to do is we just want to celebrate sharing. And so um, our goals over this next uh, series and this emphasis is fourfold. I shared these with you this morning. Number one, we want, to, um, we want the church to have an understanding of the value and the practice of fasting. Uh, this morning, we talked about fasting. Next Sunday night, during this service, we're going to postpone the Titus teaching for next Sunday night, and I'm going to provide a practical tutorial on fasting. If you want to be one that practices fasting, I encourage you to be here. If you have friends that attend life group with you or come to church with you that don't normally attend Sunday night, invite them to come next Sunday night. We'll talk about the practical components of fasting, how to prepare for a fast, how to practice the fast, and then how to get out of a fast. Uh, it, it can be a complicated process, and the longer the fast is, the more preparation, practice, and uh, coming out of the fast steps that are necessary. Um, this just earlier, I had one of our one of our church guys send me a message. He was like, "Does this qualify for a fast?" He's like, "Can I have a protein shake during my fast?" And I said, well, it depends on what your rules are. But I can tell you this, the longer the fast goes, the blurrier those rules become. You know, in the beginning, you're like, no, I'm not going to have this. I'm not going to have that. You get four or five days into it, you're like, you know what? Maybe I can. Maybe I can. And if you know, you know. If you know, you know. If you've been there, you, you realize the, the rules can get a little blurry. But we'll talk about how to walk through that how to set up a fast, how to prepare for it, how to practice it. That's going to be next Sunday night at 6.30 right here in the sanctuary. And again, I, I pray that, that through the preaching of God's word and the explanation from the pulpit of God's word on the subject of fasting, I pray that you were not only informed, but you were inspired to take up the practice of fasting um, in your own personal life. We want to host a church-wide week of prayer um, we're calling the church to pray beginning on March the 3rd all the way through March the 8th, which is a Friday, praying for evangelism. We will, um, not next Sunday morning, but the following Sunday morning on March the 3rd, during the Sunday morning service, I'll preach about praying for evangelism. What does the Bible say about praying for evangelism? And you might be interested to know this, nowhere in the Bible are we instructed to pray for lost people. It's interesting. We are no, nowhere in the Bible are we called to pray for the lost. 
by name. I will uh, share some more passages of Scripture about how we are to pray biblically for evangelism and why the Lord calls us to pray in those matters for the evangelistic causes. But during that week, I'll give you, we'll provide with some prayer topics, some prayer promptings, specifically how we want to pray and how the Lord's calling us to pray for, um, for evangelism. And let me say this, just because God's word doesn't specifically say pray for the lost by name doesn't mean we can't pray for the lost by name. All right. Um, I'm not trying to throw any shade on any of you, but a lot of y'all do a lot of things the Bible doesn't tell you you should be doing. So you kind of practice that doing it. So um, this one will just be morally permissible. But during that week, uh, that week-long prayer uh, emphasis, we'll also encourage those of you who are practicing the fast to fast during that week for the evangelistic causes that we have ahead of us. Um, and so that will be from sunset on Sunday night, March the 3rd, through sunset on Friday, March the 8th. So if you are practicing a fast, whether it be a, a normal fast or a partial fast, those will be the time stretch that we are following. And so you, again, we're not forcing you to do a fast, but we are inviting you to participate. And why are we fasting? We are fasting because we want to celebrate 500 gospel conversations. We want to celebrate sharing the gospel beginning today all the way through Easter celebrate sharing the gospel with 500 people. You see the bulbs that are in this installation. Um, We already have some bulbs lit up. We already have some bulbs lit up. The first one happened after the morning service when a grandfather shared the gospel with his grandson. I said, turn a light bulb on, man. That's what it's about. Turn a light bulb on. Uh, after the second service, there was a lady who had been praying. I'm not going to share all the details because it's their testimony to, to tell. But there's a lady that had been praying for her husband to... He had made a profession of faith in his heart, but he had never gone public. Never gone public to be baptized. And she had been praying for him for, to my knowledge, over three decades um, and I've told a story before, and, and even in one service, I gave everybody a membership card, and I told you the story about a lady who had for 40 years prayed for her husband, and, and she wrote her name on a membership card and put it in her Bible, and every single day she prayed for that man to, to make a profession of faith, to be baptized, and to join the church, and after like 40 years of praying, he finally stepped out and walked the aisle. We had something like that happen today at Lone Oak First Baptist Church. Today, and as soon as the service is over, I said, go light your light bulb and turn it on. I'm telling you that these lights, these lights, these lights are shining bright. We're talking about some major miracle moments happening right now today. And I look forward to seeing 496 more of them in the next month. Now, this is what I need from you. I need you to take personal ownership over this. Every single one of you, I need you to commit to at least sharing the gospel with one person. We had our deacons meeting uh, just a little bit ago. I challenged our deacons. Our deacons should be leaders in the church, and and our men are. I believe in them. They should be individually sharing the gospel with like 10 people over the next month. 
And I'll tell you what, if our deacons, which they can, and again, I love our deacons, every single one of them, if just our deacon body shares the gospel with 10 people over the next 10 months, that's going to take up almost all of these because y'all have an enormous amount of deacons. I know there's, there's no right number to how many deacons y'all have, but whatever it is, y'all went above it, and I'm glad you did. I do, I love our deacons. But take personal responsibility. Who can you share the gospel with this week? All of your neighbors, the people that you work with, the people that you live around, these are, these are folks that you should be sharing the gospel with. And again, we're celebrating sharing. Invite people over to your house, have a meal with them. It still is a good idea. Invite people to church and take them to lunch afterwards. It works, it's a great idea. Share a meal with people, listen to them. 500 gospel conversations. We've already got a good start. Let's keep it going. Um, you can come up, if you share the gospel with someone, you can come up after the service, before the service, and even during the invitations. I want to invite you to come up individually, as a family, as a household. And if you share the gospel with people, turn a light bulb on for each one of those gospel conversations. We've got some work to do, but I'm telling you, we are moving in the right direction. Um, we also want to, we also want, have a goal of, of this month inviting 2,000 people, 2,000 people to Easter services at Lone Oak First Baptist Church. Every month I'm told that we have a little over 2,000 people that attend worship here. So what we would call regular attenders and members, uh, it's probably closer to 2,100 people. So I want to invite you to invite someone to Easter services here at Lone Oak First Baptist Church. Um, and when I say invite someone, I'm not talking about just taking a, an inviter card and leaving it on their windshield at Walmart. What I'm inviting you to do is challenging you to do is to find someone that you know and invite them to sit with you at Easter services at Lone Oak. So if you have a, a single person household, you're responsible for one person. If you have a household with five folks, five people should come with y'all to Easter at least. And invite them to come with you to Easter services at Lone Oak First Baptist Church. In the next couple of weeks, we'll have some inviter cards that you can use. Um, it's going to be an exciting time. Now, that week, if you don't know this, Easter is on March the 31st, and that's the first weekend of spring break. All right, there's going to be some folks that go out of town. If you can delay your spring break travels till after the Sunday morning services on Easter, I want to encourage you to make that decision, okay? And if you plan on coming, I want to invite you to invite someone. Now, if you're the people you are inviting choose not to come, that doesn't mean you don't get to come either, all right? You still need to come to church. But bring people with you to worship. We're taking steps. Um, the staff and the team are working on on uh, plans to host an overflow crowd. And I believe that there will be. There were probably, we had great services this morning. There were probably close to 1,200 people in-house today. Um, we put another 2,000 people in there. It's going to be full. And it's going to be fantastic. I can't wait. So these are our goals. I pray that you would participate. When we get to Titus chapter 3, verse 8, this is a verse where Paul is writing to Titus. Remember the context. We almost always remember context. It's been famously said from this pulpit that context is both key and king. It is key to understanding what was meant by God, and it's king, which means what God meant to say trumps what we think he ought to say. And when we study the context of the particular passage in front of us, we come to the conclusion about some context clues. Some of the context clues are, number one, that Paul is the author. He is writing to Titus, but even though he writes this letter to Titus, there is application for 
us. He's writing to Titus, who is being given charge over the churches in Crete. Crete is one of those locations that everyone begs to be sent to as a missionary because of its tropical location and its beautiful setting. And everybody wants to be a missionary in Crete until you meet the people that are call themselves Christians in Crete, who happen to just be a bunch of rascals, Bunch of rascals whose mamas didn't whoop them enough when they were little kids. And Paul, we know this because Paul tells us in, in chapter one of Titus that they were disobedient people that had a problem with authority. And then again, in the beginning of chapter three that we're going to revisit again, he mentions it again. You used to be insubordinate, disobedient people. And the only way I know how you grow up to be an insubordinate, disobedient person is because you didn't get enough spankings when a kid taught what it means to be obedient and subordinate. So they must have lacked discipline once upon a time. Unfortunately, it's commonplace among the Cretans there in the island of Crete to be this type of people. They were resistant to, uh, they were resistant to authority and they were resistant to rule. It wasn't just in their character makeup, but since 67 years before Jesus Christ, they were people who had been forcefully dominated by Roman rule and government. And so some of their pushback was really not just a relation to their childhood uh, experience, but it was also just a natural resistance to a foreign force coming and exerting itself over them. And so rightfully so, you and I, if we had a foreign nation come and try to take us over, we would also push back a little bit. The problem though is that their pushback wasn't just civil. It wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just this, this civil response to a foreign power, but rather it was a civil disobedience that had even plagued into their personal relationships with other people. Uh, the result is that they were no longer good citizens. And here's the problem with Christians who are no longer good citizens. The problem is, is when you have Christians that are no longer good citizens, they are sabotaging the purpose that they have still in the communities they live in, which is to reach people for the kingdom of God. If you are disagreeable, insubordinate, disobedient people to anyone and everyone who's around you, including the people that you're supposed to reach, you will unsurprisingly have a difficult time reaching those people. And so Paul gives these instructions in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We read them and studied them last week. And we're going to read them again in just a second. He gives them these instructions. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, we read this verse. And this is our verse of study for the evening. He says, the saying is trustworthy. We'll look at it in a moment. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and they're profitable for people. So he, 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 he says, what I'm telling you is trustworthy. All right, we're going to look at that at point one. Second point is that people need to be, you need to, Titus, you need to charge people. You need to charge, you need to insist on these things so that those people who believe in God, here's the second part of the message that we'll give tonight, so that they may be careful, they must show caution to devote themselves to these good works. And then the third point we'll look at is because these things are profitable and they're good. So in other words, here's what he's going to say in a threefold argument, a threefold natural division of this particular verse. Number one, he's going to say, the things that I've told you are trustworthy. Number two, you need to insist on the people 
carefully devoting themselves to these things. In other words, how they should practice and what they should practice in the application of these trustworthy sayings. And finally, he just re-emphasizes his point by saying, the things that I'm giving you and challenging you to insist upon the people, they're both excellent and they're profitable for everyone. It's a win, win, win. So we look at it. Paul writes, these things are trustworthy. What's he talking about? What is trustworthy? Well, we look at the natural conclusion is that it's the words that precede the words, this is trustworthy. And you would not believe this, but if you read the scholars who've written extensively on this particular point, they find it natural among themselves to argue about what it exactly it is that Paul says is trustworthy. I find it so fascinating that academia, they make a living on arguing and they argue about things that I believe make absolutely no difference. But they have to sell books. So they come up with new arguments. And they'll argue... The saying is trustworthy. What is the saying? I believe the saying is the things that he said just before he says the saying. And if he's saying the saying is trustworthy in verse 8, it must mean that some verses somewhere before verse 8 are the words that he's referring to as the saying. So let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 3 and let's read this and let's see if we can figure out what about what he says is trustworthy. Uh, trustworthy means full of the faith or loyal to the faith. That's what the word trustworthy means. So if you're trustworthy, you're loyal to the things of God. You're loyal to the faith. So we look back. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Paul writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Again, why would he need to remind them to be these things? Because it wasn't in their character to be. All right? It wasn't in their character. He's not just saying it for the fun of saying it. He's saying it because these people had trouble with that particular practice. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. That means there's no one that you should speak evil against. We looked at this last week, but it's worth repeating. To speak evil against someone is to speak in a way that assigns a value at them. Here's the problem with assigning value to someone. The problem is, is that the value that they are ascribed is not presented to them by one of you. It's presented to them by their creator. So you are stepping in the place of their creator and saying, I know God says that they have value, but I'm going to say they're worth this. In order for you to do that effectively, you have to stand in opposition to God. And that's a terrible place to be. He says, speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And then Paul transitions a little bit. He says, so you should do these. And he gives some negative commands and he gives some positive commands. And he jumps into verse three of Titus chapter three. And he says, for we ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior, so we're transitioning, all right? Again, he gives, here's the command. And then he says, these are the things that we used to be. And now he gives the command starting in verse four. Uh, or he doesn't give the command, but now he gives the reason for why we should be loving towards other people because of what God has done in our life. But when the loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. 
by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So three-frame argument, verses one through two, he says, these are the instructions that you need to remind the Cretans about In verse 3, he says, the reason you need to remind them to be good citizens is because of what you used to be. You should be patient with these people because of the way that God has been patient with you. And in verse 4, he says, let me show you the extent that God went through to make you what you are now as opposed to what you were. Let me show you how extensive and, and deliberate God's action was to transform you from a bunch of disobedient, foolish, outlawish people to being ones who carry with them the goodness of God. And he lays it out, this triune argument of the goodness of God being given to us through Jesus Christ, not because of works that were done by us, but by his own mercy, he gave of his own son, Jesus Christ, and he poured out his Holy Spirit to us, which we know from Ephesians chapter one is the sealing of God, the promissory note. And through his Holy Spirit, not only does he rebirth us, but he also is continually doing new works in our life, something to keep our eye on. And he does all of this through the perfect goodness of Jesus Christ, who he's justified us with, making us heirs, co-laborers, adopted brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ to inherit the hope of eternal life, the certainty of eternal life. And then he gets into verse eight and he says, the saying is trustworthy. What saying is faithful to the faith? All of it. Every bit of it is. So what do you need to tell people? You need to tell people that they are challenged and called to be good citizens. You need to tell people that they used to be in rebellion to God and you need to tell people what God has done so that they would no longer live in hostility and rebellion to him, but now they would be cooperating with his kingdom mission because of his work through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the outpouring, continual regenerative work of his Holy Spirit in their life. Tell them all of these things because it's faithful and trustworthy. That's what he's telling them. We move on and and he tells us in the very next passage or in the very next phrases, he says, not only is the saying trustworthy, it's faithful to the faith. It's loyal to the faith. But he leans into Titus and he says, Titus, I want you to do something. I want you to insist on these things. I want you to take a stand on these things. You know, it takes a lot of courage to be a Christian. It takes a lot of courage to be a Christian in these days, would you agree? Those days as it does these days. you've got to insist among the churches that they lean into these words, that they lean into these ways. You've got to take a stand even among the brothers and sisters in the church and don't back down. You know, there's some things that we can compromise on within the fellowship of the church. There's some things that we can figure out what works for us. 
We can talk about some of the tertiary matters of the practice of our faith, and we can figure out what is the marriage between what you want and what I want and what they want to figure out what it is that we will be about and what we'll do. There's some things that are negotiable, but there are some things that are not. There are some matters that are non-negotiable, And when people come with preferences that collide with the prescribed written word and will of God, we take a stand and we don't back down. We take a stand and we don't back down. And one of those matters is the call to be a good citizen for the sake of winning our communities to Jesus Christ. In other words, our mission is one of those areas we don't back down on. And secondly, is what God has done so that we could be co-laborers with him in the mission. Other words, the salvific work of God through Jesus Christ and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. These are doctrinal matters, both in proper theology and practical theology, that we don't back down on. That's why we have the proclamation of the gospel time in and time out here at Lone Oak First Baptist Church. And that's why we have emphasis on reaching our community because these are non-negotiable points of our existence. If we stop preaching the gospel and stop trying to reach the nations with the gospel, we stopped having a purpose. We stopped having a reason to be here. Matter of fact, the only reason that we still exist here after receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ, is to be on mission with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we weren't being left on mission, he would have just taken us to heaven already. But he left us for a purpose, and the news that we have is that we are God's only plan for reaching the world with the gospel. There's no plan B. There's no alternate path. It is people who have been bought by the blood telling people who have yet to know about the blood, about the goodness of Jesus Christ and the free gift that's offered to them. And he says, the trustworthy, the, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist in a courageous, non-negotiable way that these things be so. And the reason that you need to insist on these and you need to press them and push them is so that So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Lots happening right here. We're going to try not to make it any more confusing than we have to. You need to insist on these things. Titus, you need to keep these things in front of you. That means to be mindful and intentional. commitment to make the decision to maintain continuity in that decision you need to be devoted to things that are profitable and what is the thing that the Lord has called us to that's profitable what is the thing the Lord's called us to that is fruitful he's called us to win the world that is around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It cannot be overstated that we are called to be on mission. And I hope that I get accused of ringing a bell to talk about it as much as we've got to talk about the fact that we are here to reach the people with the gospel. And thank the, thank the good Lord 
evangelism Yes, you have to, and you get to. To devote, to, to devote themselves, I'm, I'm getting, we're getting there. To devote yourselves to it, it means also, it means to have an inward conviction that plays itself in an outward performance. We're getting to some literal definition here. It's an inward conclusion that you have if when you're devoted to something, it, it's an inward conclusion that you've reached that leads itself to the output or the outplay of an external performance. So if we're devoting ourselves to the cause of Christ, it means those of us who have received the truth of Jesus Christ, we live out that fashion. This is a term that Paul uses in descriptive and played out, uh, played out explanation throughout his pastoral epistles. He loves to use this twofold approach. One, we know the things are true about who God is. Two, because we know these things are true, we act in this particular fashion. We see it in Philippians, we see it in Ephesians, we see it in Colossians, we see it in some of the other places where Paul's authorship is in question or either suspect, where he says, we know these things are true about God, therefore we act in this way. And you should know, just to add some meat to this particular point, you should know that what Paul is doing is really something that's synonymous with the Christian argument towards repentance. Because repentance means having an inner perspective that leads to an outward reaction. Because we know in our heart the truth of who Jesus Christ is, it leads us to turn away from one thing and towards another thing. So to be devoted to something is the same thread of thought as being repentant about something. Because we are convicted in our hearts about the truth of who Jesus Christ is, we now live in a different way. We no longer live in one direction, which would represent a false conviction. Now we live towards Jesus Christ because we have a conviction over the truth of who he is as the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. So we return to chapter 3, verse 8. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may carefully devote themselves to good works. There's another meaning that is found in the subcurrent of this particular passage, and it is not just what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to vote, devote ourselves to the mission of God, but how we're supposed to do it. How we're supposed to do it is we are supposed to live in good, in good works. In other ways, we're supposed to live out the mission all the while doing so as winsome people. Participate in good works while you're trying to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be a contributor, even if it doesn't benefit you. You know, we can never forget. We can never forget that the mission that we're called to involves people. Three words I've given to our men. I'm going to give them to you as well if you want to write these down. One is people. Beside it, if you want to write the word product. And beside the next one, if you want to write the word project. People, products, and projects. We are called to reach people. You can circle that one. We are not called to manufacture products. It's not our calling. 
Some of you, that is your calling in your workplace. You manufacture products and, and you should. I hope you manufacture some wonderful products that we can use and maybe even consider selling them to us at a reasonable price. But here in the church, we are called to minister to people, to reach people, to raise up people, to serve people, to love people, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people, to disciple those people. And those people are not products. The next is projects. We are called to reach people. We are not called to manage projects. Those people that God has called us to are not projects for us to conquer or deliver on. Some of you, you have professions where you have projects and you have to organize and rally and maneuver and finish the project on time and under budget. And I pray that you do well on your projects. Matter of fact, if you happen to have Lone Oak First Baptist Church's building program as one of your projects, I hope you do fantastic and cut us a great deal. Thank you, Hank. But our calling as a body of believers is not to treat people like projects that we're going to get done on time and under budget. God's called us to people. When you go to people and you ask them what's the matter, sometimes that question comes across like they're just a project that we're going to fix. But what we should do is we should go to people instead of asking them, what's the matter, we should go to them and ask them what matters to you. Because when you start asking people what matters to them, then you get an opportunity to listen to what's at their heart. Because ultimately what we want to do is we want to do good works towards people that God loves for the sake and the effort of trying to win them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the saying is old, but it is still true. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. So he says that you should go to win them by being winsome through good works. There's a church that I want to point your attention to that did just that. Do you have your Bibles? If you could turn to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, and let me show you what happens when a church commits themselves to the good favor of people. In the book of Acts, we have one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. We have the Holy Spirit falling at Pentecost in the first verses. Uh, Falls like fire all over the house. The people begin speaking in tongues. It's not just a gibberish language, but it's actually people through the inspiration and supernatural working of the Holy Spirit speaking the gospel in the languages of the people that are present. Then we have uh, all the people that are like, look at all these Christians, they're drunk. But they weren't drunk, they just had the Holy Spirit on them. And then you have all of these thousands of people that are standing there in Jerusalem for, uh, for Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover lamb, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up, and I love verse 14, it's not the point of what the message is right now, but I love it, and it's so potent to the churches today. Verse 14 of chapter 2 in Acts says, but Peter, standing with the 11, Peter stood to preach, but he didn't stand by himself. No man should ever stand by himself in a pulpit. There should always be an army of brothers standing with him. Every single time. And he lifted up his voice and he addressed them. And he speaks this message, giving testimony to the Lord and preaching the word. And then we jump down into uh, into verse 
40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the Holy Spirit comes, they have one service, at the end of the service, they give an invitation, and 3,000 people come down front. Oh, that we could see that day. 3,000 people come down front. They get baptized and then look at what happens because we have the formation of the first New Testament church taking place in this instance. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. So they get to, they're, they're participating in fellowship and discipleship. They're getting together and they're hearing the preached word and they're learning what it means and they're fellowshipping with other people. They're spending time together. Uh, what a great time for us just to remember that being the church doesn't mean just coming and sitting in a pew, but it involves cooperating and fellowshipping, spending time with each other. Why? Because we're people. People matter. Read forward in verse 43. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So there is worship that's taking place. They're in awe of what God is doing. Verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They're beginning to share their resources. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they are ministering and performing missions. It's been said that ministry happens inside the church. Missions happens outside of the church. So they're performing ministry, sharing to meet needs as they had any. And then they're selling things to perform missions, to take care of the missionary work that's outside. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now watch in verse 47. I want you to watch in 47, and I'm going to show you something. Bible scholars have historically called, and Rick Warren was very famous for this. He published a book called The Purpose Driven Church. It came out before The Purpose Driven Life. And he identifies what he calls the five pillars of the New Testament church. One of the pillars that he considers a, a critical, necessary component of a church is the practice of evangelism. Now, the verse that he subscribes the practice of evangelism to in this particular passage is verse 47. And I want to show it to you because I find it to be so fascinating the way he applies that. He says, praising God and having favor with all people. So let's start back in verse 46 so that we get the full sentence. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And look at the result. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know what I see there? I see a church who is excited, thankful, glad, and joyful that they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the people around them see it and they say, I want some of that. I see a church that is joyful to participate in good works. And their joyful participation in good works and their generosity towards others, both within and outside of the church, sets such a powerful witness that people are coming to be a part of what God's doing at Jerusalem First Baptist Church in a way that they had never seen before. Every single day, people are coming to the church. 
So maybe when Paul insists that Titus insists on the people being good citizens, joyful and thankful and glad and generous, maybe when he insists on them holding those characteristics and attributes among themselves for the sake of reaching other people, maybe he's on to something. And maybe that's something that we should be on. He says that if you'll do these things, that you should because they are both excellent and they are profitable. In other words, the closing statement of Titus chapter 3 verse 8 is that these, these actions and these attitudes about going about these actions, they are good, meaning they're attached to the heart and way of God, and they're profitable. They will produce results. In other words, you'll reach people. You'll reach the people you need to reach. I want to lead us to a time of invitation. The hour is late and the time is short, but not too short for us to have an invitation. So Brother Mark, if you'd make your way forward, anyone that's going to help us with the invitation, if you'd make your way forward, I'm going to invite you where you are to stand. During this invitation, I'll invite you, if you need to make a decision for Jesus, that you do so tonight. Maybe you, you've never received Jesus as your Savior and you've never professed him publicly through believer's baptism. During the invitation, you can come forward and take me by the hand. I'm here. We've got a couple of ministers on either side that would be available to receive you as well. If you need to pray with someone, I'd be glad to receive you again. One of our ministers would as well. And maybe you shared the gospel with someone today or had a spiritual conversation and we will celebrate you sharing by lighting up one of these lights. You can make your way down front during the invitation and just say, I got to turn a light on and we'll be excited. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the night, allowing us to jump into your word and study it. Father, as we respond tonight, I pray, God, that we would do so in obedience by faith. Help us now, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The invitation's open.